Welcome to Sweden in Transition podcast. In a world in need of urgent reinvention, they do or see things differently and tell us more. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I'm very pleased to meet Amanda Power. Amanda is professor at Oxford University and historian of religion and intellectual life in medieval Europe. She is currently working on a monograph, Medieval History of the Anthropocene, and also just wrote a small daring article, Notre Dame should not be restored, let it stand as a symbol of a flawed way of life. Hi, Amanda. Hi. First of all, thank you very much for accepting this invitation. We are very lucky to have you during one of your visits in Stockholm. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me to come. Can you define for us the Anthropocene and tell us how it is rooted way back in our human history? Well, the Anthropocene is an interesting concept that people are playing with at the moment. So it's it's supposed to be the geological age that comes after the Holocene, which is the one that we've been living in for the entire time humans have been here. So there's a group of people who decides which geological age we live in, and they're called quaternary stratigraphers. And so the Society of Quaternary Stratigraphers is at the moment trying to decide at what point From a geological perspective, we move into the Anthropocene and the, the possibilities range from first use of fire by humans to modify environments right through to nuclear testing in, in the 1940s when the world was irradiated by products of nuclear testing. That's a very clear geological marker. I think we can't go back from that one. And there's a whole range of possibilities in between. Industrialization's a big one. That's the sort of scientific end of what they're doing with the Anthropocene in a geological context. But it's actually been used very widely to explore the idea of a world where the human imprint dominates everything and nature's been reshaped to serve human interests. Inadvertent consequences of what humans are doing are also affecting nature in all kinds of ways that... Um, we think will be laid down for whoever comes to look at the planet after us to see. So basically, Anthropocene means that humanity is transforming the biosphere and exactly. the world we live in. How is it rooted in history? If we see this as a, as a product of European colonialism or industrialization, which are the two big things that people tend to point to, we tend to see it as a problem of European culture and European ways of doing things, or possibly colonial practices. We have got records for societies back 3,000 years or more. Pretty much always big states that capture large numbers of the population into providing resources for the elites at the top of the state. And so this has a huge impact, particularly on things like food production and, and land management practices, because it becomes essential to know what your resources are if you're one of these states. You need to know what kind of food is being grown where and, and how much of it you're going to have, when the crop's going to be ready, when it can be moved and stored. And so this tends to lead to the focus of the state on growing particular kinds of crop and often monocropping very problematic at the moment goes back a very very long way so particular kinds of grain grown more or less at state mandate not necessarily with interest in whether that's the right thing to grow in that environment and very large-scale environmental modifications we can track back to very ancient empires to produce this kind of food supply for me i wonder whether this is something connected with the way that powerful groups and states organize themselves the, the way that you need to alter nature to be able to concentrate power. But of course, for ordinary members of the population who are probably being exploited, if you can move food around an empire, you're less likely to starve. And maybe the estate will provide an army to defend you. There are advantages to being in a state. It's not just a bad thing. And so people do kind of agree to it. And these, these state structures grow and dominate their environments. Historians haven't tended to see these as environmental problems. They've tended to see these as kind of 
exciting moments of civilization which come and go through history so you know the great empires of the tigris euphrates region and um, the great empires of greece and rome and the great empires of china they've always been seen as moments where modernizing moments where the whole organization of things becomes more sophisticated and at the very top it produces sort of high culture that we're proud of as as humans you know the literacy and the literature and the scientific inventions and the, the technology of each society so i think for historians one of the things that's interesting is flipping this and seeing what the environmental costs were This is kind of a pattern. We see empire grow and progress accelerating, and at some point it's collapsing and reinventing itself. It does seem to be a bit like that. I mean, there are definitely areas where it's more possible to have large-scale empires, partly because of the environment in which it's located, so fertile valleys. But they do seem to come and go in similar parts of the world. I think the factor that has to be taken into account when we're thinking about the, the rising and falling is, and it's very recently and interestingly been linked to quite significant shifts in climate, not like we're facing now but significant in the scheme of things. And it's connected to the large-scale solar cycles and solar maxima and solar minima where you have decades or centuries where it's either a bit warmer or a bit cooler on average. We're not talking about weather here. We're talking about very large-scale um, kind of environmental systems. But also this might lead to shift functioning of the monsoon or drought or colder periods or warmer periods. So we have the Little Ice Age, I think. After the fall of the Roman Empire, it seems that biodiversity did increase in Europe. And it looks as if for a time, at any rate, that adult males were taller than they had been previously um, under, under Rome. In the absence of a very large centrally organizing empire, humans are still managing their environments, but on a maybe smaller and more local scale with more diverse diets. So the more centralized the empire gets, the more inequality yes. and uh, the more destructive it is for the environment. So what explained the decline? You were mentioning environmental change. And what else? Is it a convergence of different factors that explain the decline or one major event that would be decisive? I think for, the, for these very big, well-organized, highlight empires like Rome, it takes a lot. If you're looking at the period where Rome is falling, inverted commas, it's a very long time. A lot of different types of things happen and come together. And I mean, historians can't even agree whether it really fell or whether it was transformed or, or you, there's a, you know, there are lots of arguments about this sort of thing. There's a very interesting recent book um, by Kyle Harper called The Fate of Rome, which presented as a kind of perfect storm of forces, including disease and episodes of very serious plague and volcanic activity. So you put all those things together with possibly sort of shifts in social organization, collapses in food supplies, threats from outside from people who may have been destabilized by changing climate patterns elsewhere. I think the final thing to say on this is that historians are very uncomfortable with suggesting that the environment is determining things. It's, it, there are always human choices. But I suppose if you've got a very large, complicated empire or a very large, complicated state that's maybe very, very unequal and very extractive, it's probably not as resilient as people living in local areas who can, you know, survive or move. Some of the drivers of collapse are rising now. Do you think that we are in a possible collapse time? We certainly seem to have a lot of the risk factors for a society that's very unequal, in some ways rather ill-informed. There's a great deal of emphasis in discussions around this about choices of individuals and how choices can help with things. But I'm a little bit suspicious of that. It sort of it fits with the general neoliberal capitalist narrative that you know you're empowered by choice. I think that there are very big political decisions that need to be taken. Things, a lot of things need to happen at the level of legislation if they're going to happen fast enough. And I don't know whether the way our society is organized, that's going to work. The very, very powerful interest pushing back against doing anything fast enough. We're all aware of the conspiracy by the fossil fuel companies to hide what they knew to be the case. If we see this, this kind of obstructive 
to put it mildly, behavior replicated across all sorts of groups that are profiting from the status quo and would lose out badly if it were changed. There are very, very heavy forces kind of dragging against rapid change. Um, and these are maybe the, the elites of empires, if we want to look at them as historical players. Like all of us, I have to believe that there's hope as well. If the population were democratically demanding change, large enough numbers of people, it would be hard for these forces to shut that down entirely. You wrote this article recently about Notre Dame. Can you explain us why you think it should not be restored, why it could stand as a symbol as it is? Yes. Burnt. <laughs> so the thing that prompted me to write it is a lot of places are declaring climate emergencies now. And I wonder whether people are all saying, excellent, let's declare a climate emergency, but not thinking about what that means. And so I thought I would take this very important kind of emotionally charged discussion. People love this cathedral. I love this cathedral. It's, it's easy to discuss sacrificing things that people don't care about. So what if we pick something that people care about and think about that in the context of all the challenges we're facing. So in a sense, if we restore it, we're saying here's a lot of money. I wrote the article at the time when all billionaires had offered this huge amount of money for this when they had been interested in offering money for nothing else that I'm aware of. And in a sense, it was a sort of papering over everything that, that's going wrong in, our, in the world and, and trying to create a situation where we can just pretend nothing's happening, that nothing's going on. And so if we make Notre Dame as it was, it's, it's a sort of continuation of Western civilization being absolutely fine, despite the fact that all other societies are collapsing. But I mean, really, the point wasn't so much Notre Dame as to think about if we're valuing central monuments of Western civilization as our civilization is driving climate collapse. It seemed indecent to me. In your article, you explain how it all started almost. We could read history and see in medieval time how some change in culture and mindset started at the time? Yes, I mean, I think that this was the other half of the picture. So we see it as a symbol of a great cultural achievement, but we don't think too much about what exactly it was built for and what kind of cultural achievement it is. If we put this in a climate context, there are kind of major climate fluctuations across the medieval period. And the one that this sits in is it's called the medieval climate anomaly, and it was experienced quite differently across the globe. But what was happening in Europe is that it was quite a good time for people in the environment. It was warmer. The weather patterns tended to be fairly stable from year to year, the seasonal cycles. It was possible to grow kind of crops of empire, if you like, so grain crops further north. This time was connected with the expansion of the European kingdoms. Part of that was draining marshlands and disrupting the ways of living in those environments that had been fairly sustainable through the earlier medieval period. So draining the marshlands, planting um, grain crops, there was a growth of a manorial system with the vast majority of the population being tied to the land in one way or another, not necessarily free to move with their labour being owed to the, the people who said that they owned the land. And this is, I guess, where the money's coming from to build Notre Dame. Every person in the population was obliged to give 10% of what they had to the church each year. What they... So there is a lot of coercion of labour and extraction of resources from the landscape, taking a sort of step into a less sustainable way of doing things. That's some of what I'm saying comes from a book by Richard Hoffman called environmental history of medieval Europe. It's incredibly interesting on these on these shifts towards a much more organized and slightly centralized way of, of organizing resources. And so the church is partly built on those things, but it's also a, a major player in inculcating a sort of sense of, of loyalty to Christian authorities. And by that, I also include the kings and, and the lords. It's a hierarchical system of power that's underpinned by divine authority. Um, and so the, the church becomes a symbol of that. It's a, it's, a, it's a tool of education. Anyone who came in there would be taught Christian doctrine. And it's coercive as well. So as Notre Dame was being built in the 13th century there, they're hauling Jews in and burning the Talmud and the Inquisition grows in this period. So this is not the smiling face of the church, very closely connected coercive power. I suppose what I was wanting to point to is that th this is what this building is. It's a celebration and a, a tool of education for these values. 
Do you think that this narrative is still the narrative that our current society is uh, built upon? Or do you think the narrative has changed since then? Our ideas don't change as much as we think they do. So a lot of the things that we would link to the Enlightenment are, are ideas that people had before that. It takes a less explicitly Christian form. But various aspects of the way that we think of ourselves in modernity, the, the sort of constant um, need to, to work hard to make money and to improve oneself. and to I think that there's a lot in our culture that one can connect to Christian drive to self-improvement and, and turning your thoughts away from the world. And when I say the world here, I mean getting into the soil and the kind of extraordinary natural realities of the world um, and to reimagine them in, in Christian terms and in terms of kind of creation by one divine power and the ultimate destruction of the world in order to find salvation at the end. What can we imagine would be a positive narrative for the future? I've noticed recently there's been more and more reference to can we go to indigenous people, ask them to teach us again how to be in environments. It makes me feel slightly queasy having gone and pretty much destroyed the indigenous cultures around the world that we're now um, valorizing in this particular way. I, I think that that is kind of horrifically problematic in every possible way. Um, but it's an interesting moment in Western history that we finally st stop having absolute confidence in our superiority and to sort of recognize that maybe other people actually knew better all along. There seem to be areas where this is a very rich possibility. From my perspective as a historian or as, as an academic as well, I think education is absolutely essential. And I think teaching people a new story about what humans are in the world will help a great deal. In schools, there is now more of an emphasis on teaching children about insects and plants and where food comes from and, and what they're eating and a whole sort of connected set of things around that. I think that could be done more and probably better. You know, one could draw on indigenous societies for these but we, things, but we could also look back to historical societies and, and the very different practices adopted over time. And you could tell your histories like that. And every time you use the word development, you could say kind of development of whom, of what, at the expense of what, you know, what's lost at each stage of development. So rather than seeing development as forward progress, seeing development as change from one thing to another that always has maybe costs and always has maybe benefits, but contextualize everything much more. And, and teach children to think in those terms right from the outset. It's all about progress. This is very much the, the mythology or the narrative our society is, is built upon. And maybe that's the problem in the first place. History is taught uh, as a continuous progress. Yes, I mean, I think that's the big narrative that we need to get rid of. Probably the worst problem that we're facing at the moment because of that is that we're very, very unwilling to go backwards. Backwards is a pejorative term. Backwards is what... The global south is and we in the, we in the um, global north don't want to be backwards. And, and it's a really aggressive political tool, that concept. And it's so caught up in the entire way we tell the history of, you know, why we're better, why we deserve to colonize everyone else, you know, why European empires were a good thing, why Europeanized, you know, kind of westernized globalization is a good thing for humanity. And all this kind of locks us into this really, apart from anything else, kind of rather horrifically wrong way of thinking about things. But also it makes it very hard to imagine alternatives and it's very unrealistic as well. So what it means that you get to the point where you have to say, okay, we've made all this progress and we were excellent and actually that's turned out to be catastrophic. So what are we going to do now? And I think if you tell history like that, it's terrifying for people. Because you know, up until you know their parents' generation or or right now, everything's been just going in the right direction and suddenly that's taken away from them and our whole identity as as kind of excellent globalizing, modernizing, enlightened people falls apart. And I think if you tell a different story, then that shocking ending isn't a shocking ending after all. It's part of a much wider, more dynamic kind of continuity of human experience within the world. What do you think went wrong? What should we change to make it right? 
A lot of historians talk about intensification and a sort of acceleration of various tendencies in society, in, in modernity particularly. To make a good history of what went wrong, we probably need to go far back in some ways and look at the foundations of it. But I think we also probably need to look especially at the point where we began to feel confident about our mastery over nature, because there are long periods where we're talking about environmental alterations but often in the context of enormous anxiety about the environment and fear, fear of wolves, for example, in Europe particularly. So there are kind of sort of shifts of experience of nature when it became possible to grow and store enough food that famine became less of a risk. That's pretty recent. Over the last few centuries, we are seeing a growth of the wrong kind of confidence in relation to nature, a confidence that looks at particular sorts of threats and sees them as being overcome, but is a bit oblivious to what happens if you use pesticides and wipe out all the insects and there are no pollinators left, or you know what happens if you fill the air with CO2 and the climate changes in a drastic and rapid way. I, th I think what we need to be looking at is the kind of confidence and lack of humility, that sort of way of thinking engenders, and also the ignorance. We think of ourselves as knowing more and more, but in, in many ways we actually know less and less. We know more about some things and less about other things. And ordinary people trained and educated in the way that they are in, in many nations at the moment are really not taught very much. I mean, speaking for myself, I know that we live in a very high-tech world, but I haven't the first idea how it works. So it's actually quite a small minority of people who really have that kind of knowledge that we see as our progressive knowledge. And the rest of us know how to use this technology because it's very user-friendly. But it's not knowledge that we actually have as a society. And to, to live in this kind of very urbanised world full of these sorts of devices, we've lost all the knowledge of how to survive. So not only do I not understand how a computer works, I also don't really know how I would grow enough food to survive. I certainly couldn't build myself a house or, or hunt or any of these things. So what do I actually know? What does our society know? So I think that the valorization of our knowledge together with a shocking level of, of ignorance and poor education is probably where things began to go wrong. The youth generation is uh, protesting a lot. Do you think that can be efficient? That was the moment when I began to feel some hope that we might be able to change things. Partly because the young protesters have a, an absolutely undeniable moral authority and courage and hope and also so much at stake for them. And I think it, no one can deny how much is at stake for someone who at the moment is at school or in their early 20s. They have a capacity to protest that I think older people at the moment don't have. They can't be kind of stigmatized as hippies or as, as people who are kind of odd environmentalists as a whole, very carefully developed language that sort of discredits. The kind of environmental activists we're more familiar with makes them have less traction in mainstream society. These school protests, movements like Extinction Rebellion, which draw in ordinary people and older people, the pensioners who are doing these. I think this is where things begin to change. You live in the UK. Can you tell us more about uh, Extinction Rebellion and the more radical civil disobedience? Extinction Rebellion began with a letter that was signed, amongst other people, by the former Archbishop of Canterbury. There are some major establishment figures behind that. It gave it a sort of respectability, I suppose a particular kind of authority. It couldn't be overlooked. And, and uh, there was also a letter signed by many academics in, and scientists and engineers, people working in universities across Britain. So it, it started off with that. It's not the same thing as the school's climate strikes, which are also happening, but there's a sort of convergence of tendencies. Many uh, sort of serious people in respect to professional positions for what it's worth just felt that civil disobedience was the only thing to do. I mean, nothing else was working, everything else all the kind of respected and established tools of democratic input had been disregarded time after time after time over decades. I think that's where you get to. And as an historian, can you compare that with the big fights like for civil rights in the US? 
the models that people are looking to, and you're right, the civil rights in America, but also Gandhi, civil disobedience, peaceful civil disobedience, I think that that's the underlining factor. There's been some studies on this that as soon as you become violent, your effectiveness declines. I think there's some suggestion that if it spreads to about 3.5% of the population, then it can affect significant social change. What will happen to the school climate protests if they don't work? The year goes by and no one's really listened. Are people going to lose hope and faith in the system and what happens after that? I think it's incredibly important for anyone who values stable governments in, in Europe, for the governments to really start obviously listening. In the UK, what is their reaction? And do you think the reaction is at the level of the demand? Oh, look, the UK is in a, in a hopeless state over Brexit at the moment. But it is interesting to see when they're doing surveys of public opinion that the environment's now ranked third with Brexit first and maybe health care second. But the environment third, and it was not like that before. So the opposition party is now bringing quite a lot of policies that would deal with all sorts of connected issues into their platform, but also looking at biodiversity and maybe rewilding various projects like this. They're not at the forefront at the moment of their policy, but they're beginning to be folded in. So, I, I mean, that's a change. So do you feel pessimistic or optimistic for the future? I've made a decision at the moment to try to be optimistic. It's a sort of act of will. Despair serves some functions and optimism serves some functions. And if we're going to change things, we need to introduce positive ways of thinking about it right now. We are potentially facing fairly rapid collapse of society if we reach one of the tipping points the scientists have hypothesized, melting of the tundra, for example, or catastrophic melting in the Arctic. And we see all these things happening. So it seems to me that urgency is the issue at the moment. We must choose to change in positive directions while we've still got a choice. What inspires you to continue to move forward? A bit of a turning point for me was reading Donna Haraway's book, Staying with the Trouble, which is a fascinating and unusual book. But the first page of the book talks about how you know, it's no good to think about salvation and apocalypse being redeemed from outside or, or the end of the world happening. And so there's no point in hoping for someone to come along and save you. And there's no point in just fearing disaster, but you have to just stay with the trouble. You have to stick with it, do the best that you can as, as a person in a situation. There's no doubt we're facing a tough few centuries if we survive as humans. Um, and so we stick with the situation. It's maybe a way to reveal ourselves. And I mean, I find it quite an exciting thing. I'm making it perhaps sound not very exciting, but it's kind of a grim let's hang in here thing. But also if we do, then perhaps good things will come of it. And Yeah. And as an historian, do you feel we are living a historical moment? Well, as a historian, I'm obliged to say that all moments are historical, but it certainly could potentially be a very big turning point for humanity in one direction or another over the coming decades, or maybe multiple directions at once. Who knows? That was a pleasant time together. Thank well, you thank so you much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks a lot to Amanda Power and to you all for listening. If you like this episode, please share it or rate it on iTunes so it can be noticed by more people. Also find links and references on sweden See you soon.